Good morning, church. To be honest with you, I stand before you this morning with a bit of a heavy heart. I've received a text message from my best friend yesterday that his father went home to be with the Lord. And uh, it's a family whose home I spent a lot of time in growing up as a child. And it was a man who loved Jesus, loved the Lord, and had the testimony uh, of a family that loves the Lord as well as my friend is a pastor at a local church here in Lancaster County. I've had the privilege of walking with him through this season of grief as he's watched his father uh, slowly pass. And it was an honor to pray with him yesterday and to reflect on the truth that not only did his father have great hope that he was going to spend an eternity with the Lord, but he also had great peace in knowing that the children that he left behind here on earth also loved the Lord as well. And so I stand with you transparently and honestly this morning that that is weighing on my heart and on my mind as we continue through our series on love. And so I'll look forward to walking with Jared over the course of the next number of days as he prepares services to lay his father to rest. It was an interesting week because we did have a funeral here at Calvary Monument Bible Church early in the week as well as the Nolt family was here for the homegoing of Jim. And I was motivated during those services as well as Jim's son stood here before the congregation and presented the gospel with such power and clarity. And in my heart, I thought how proud I would be one day if my son, one of my sons, could stand before a congregation and do the same thing at my funeral. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, there are a lot of realities that we face in our world today, but our scripture memory verse for this month remind us of what is most important, of what the greatest priority is. Let's say it together. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Last week we explored Paul's instruction that love is the greatest, the highest, and the most excellent way. But what does that love look like? And how does it work? We're going to spend the next number of weeks on this concept of love as Paul explores and unpacks it in his letter to the people of God who are living in Corinth. And we will come to discover that Paul is calling us to something that is so countercultural that most of the world would look and say, nonsense. A reality that love from a biblical perspective is often opposite to how the culture might define the word love. 
And that love, as Paul describes it, helps us to lean into the answer to the question that we have said hangs over this entire book. And if you missed it last week, the question is before us again. How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? How we love one another is relevant towards answering this question. And this is why Paul fills so much space in his letters, instructing the people of God living throughout Greece and Asia Minor on this concept of love. Jesus said this, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And Paul confirmed that this is a daily, even moment-by-moment way of life. He expressed this both to the people of God in Rome and Corinth. He said that for their sake, he faced death all day long. And that he had to die to himself daily. Friends, living as disciples of Jesus and functioning together as salt and light in the places where he has established us will cause us to love, look, and live differently than the unbelieving world that envelops us. Take your Bibles with me today and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Today we will look at verse 4 and the very first two words of verse 5. 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, we're going to read verses 4 to 5a this morning. And let's pray. Lord, we come to your word as a corporate activity, the body of Christ gathered together here in the building and those who are in homes today. We are worshiping, Lord. This is an act, a form of our worship. We come to the place of truth knowing that your spirit uses this time and uses these words to grow us in ways that sometimes we cannot even imagine. You challenge us, you stretch us, you move us. You have great intentions for us through the time we spend together in this word on a weekly basis. And so, Lord, as we approach your text today and we continue to unpack the meaning of love as Paul so eloquently defines it in this book of 1 Corinthians, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would motivate hearts to move to action, that we may love in a way that honors you and loves those who you've brought into our pathways. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 5a. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Paul begins with these two words. Love is... And it is important that we start with the concept of love itself. And, and I'll give you an illustration as to why. If Sheila and I were driving together on a date, those are very rare these days, by the way. But if so happened that we were able to get out one-on-one and drive together to the city of Philadelphia, one of my favorite places to go. On the way there, it may not be completely abnormal for me to look over to my wife and say, I love you. I really do. 
Now, 20 minutes later down the road, as we near the city of Philadelphia and the smell of one of my favorite foods begin to waft into my nose and nostrils, and I begin to think of a Gino's cheesesteak, it may also be completely relevant that I may look over to my wife and say, I really love cheesesteaks. Now look at that corner I've backed her into. Is my love for cheesesteaks the same as my love for my wife? Well, I hope not. <laughs> We're in trouble if it is. You see, we just assume in the English language that people know the difference. I would hope there is a difference. But the word love was used very differently in Greek context. Let me give you another illustration. Imagine that I visited your house and I came through your door and the first person to greet me was your wife who just recently had her hair done so beautifully. And I look at your wife and I say, oh, I love your hair. Only to move into the living room and turn the corner and be confronted with this monstrosity. Where the first words that came out of my mouth is, oh, look at that dog. I love its hair. <laughs> and again, we may be confusing each other in the English language. We just seem to roll with it. The word love was used much more specifically in ancient Greek than how we apply the word love today. For instance, scholars have determined that there were at least six Different words used for love in ancient Greece. Four of those words appear in the Bible in one way or another. There was a word for romantic love, one that would connotate physical attraction. There was another word for an empathetic or familiar love. This type of love would be the love that's shared between family members, parent to child, sibling to sibling. Still, there was a third use of the word love that was used to connotate brotherly affection. It's where we get our word and our city name, Philadelphia, from city of brotherly love. But the word that Paul is using here is the word agape. And it's, it's a love without condition. Demonstrated towards all people that God directs into our pathways, namely our neighbors. The word, quite literally, is a type of love that is persistent in working itself out towards others. This is the highest ideal of the word love that the Greek could give. It involves charity, but it is more than just service. It's benevolence, but it is more than good. It's commitment, yet it is always faithful. It's an act of the will. This kind of love is intentional love. It's thoughtful love. It is deliberate love. It's the kind of love, friends... That we've been shown by God. Because this word for love was so packed full of meaning. Paul determined that it was important for the people of God in Corinth. And indirectly the people of God throughout the world today. To know and to understand and be able to apply its meaning. This is especially important for us, church, because if we are to say, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, that God is love, 
and that word love is also agape, then we must understand what we are saying and what we mean by that statement. And what Paul is saying here in verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13 is that this is not only what love is, but also how love works. And consequently, as we will see this week and next week, he's also talking about how love does not work. Paul is not saying that he's giving us an exhaustive list. Love could manifest its way, uh, itself in ways beyond what Paul is stating here in chapter 13. But agape love is expressed in no less than what he is stating here. And as he starts to unpack his description of what love is and what love is not, he begins with two words, patient and kind. Take a look again at beginning of verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Patience and kindness. As I stand here before you today, I could honestly say that never in my life has my patience been tested more than in the past year and a half, I promise. Maybe some of you could agree. In regards to our home and family, our patience has been tested like never before. In regards to ministry leadership and leading in a church, our patience have been tested as in never before. Never in our lives has the measure of our kindness towards one another in our own home been tested more than in the past year. In the past 12 to 16 months, perhaps we could all say the same in regards to our family, our church, community relationships. Relationships are hard, friends. And we all know that family relationships are often the most difficult Integrating four new children into our family has not come without a great testing of patience and kindness on everyone's part. And what we find significant regarding Paul's use of these two specific words is that they indicate how love can be applied as both deliberately passive in patience and deliberately active in kindness. Both traits are considered as positive traits regarding love, and both are highlighted in the character of God, which is on full display in the Old Testament and the New. And we may ask ourselves how has God demonstrated patience and kindness to us? And when we ground patience and kindness in the character of God, we might consider the events that transpired on Mount Sinai. Think back to me. Remember those moments? God had just accomplished this incredible and miraculous liberation of his people from the bondage that they faced while they were slaves in Egypt. It was a gigantic demonstration of his power and his might, his holiness, and his transcendence. His people were free. God desired to give them a law. To draw them together as a nation. Teaching them rightly. How to relate to him. And how to relate to each other. What does Moses do? 
Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there. He's up there just a bit too long. And what do the people begin to do? They begin to grumble. Where did Moses go? It's not supposed to be like this. We were free. Where is this God he spoke of? Moses is up. He's receiving these laws on two stones. And while he's up there, the people below are descending into chaos, worshiping and chasing after an idol made by their own hands. You remember Moses. He comes down the mountain. He has the tablets of the law. And he sees what's going on. And he drops them and they break. And at that point... We might say that God would have been justified or just in wiping out this group of people and just starting over with another generation. But God does not do that. He is patient. He is kind. God directs Moses to make new stone tablets. So Moses goes about crafting these stone tablets, ironically in the same camp where the people had just crafted this idol. And in verse 2 of Exodus chapter 34, Moses trudges back up the mountain again to meet with God. And as the Lord passes before Moses a second time up on the mountain, look at what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The word mercy here is closely related to our word for kindness. And the phrase slow to anger is the same phrase from which we derive this idea of patience. Not only does God rewrite the law on the stone tablets, but he also, in this moment, renews his covenant with Moses and his people. And we continue to see this example of God's patience and kindness as the people falter and they fail to enter the promised land. And though they suffer consequences of wandering in the wilderness for a generation, eventually they enter the land that God had promised them. Now think of this in light of our own salvation, friends. God bears with us. Despite our shortcomings and sins and iniquities, God is patient and kind with us. Bearing with us in Great patience and kindness, God demonstrated his love towards us in the way that Paul expresses to the people of God in Rome. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Patience and kindness, we find, then, aren't only grounded in the character of God and part of his very being, but we also witness them in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Consider the patience and kindness of Jesus as he interacted with his disciples. The ones who followed Jesus most carefully and most closely were also still prone to miss what Jesus was all about. Philip, he wanted Jesus to show them the Father. James and John thought that they wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. 
Peter said he would never deny. Judas betrayed. Thomas doubted. Yet it was Jesus who saw through their character flaws and weaknesses, walking together with them, bearing with them in great patience and kindness. Jesus' disciple Peter was a recipient of Jesus' patience and kindness. And later he would say to the people of God spread throughout Asia Minor, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Paul, who would come to believe after Jesus had ascended to the Father, gave similar insight in the book of Romans and again in his first letter to Timothy saying this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And to Timothy, but I've received mercy for this reason, so that me... This is Paul speaking. The worst of sinners, the worst of them, that in me Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Jesus demonstrates patience and kindness both in his earthly ministry of revealing the Father and preaching the gospel of the kingdom which he came to do along with his continual ministry of applying the gift of eternal life to those who believe. Jesus is patient, friends. Jesus is kind. And we are to have the same attitude, the same mind as Christ. Paul begins this exposition on love in 1 Corinthians 13 by referring us back to these two positive attributes, patience and kindness. But he also endeavors in this to reveal to us what love is not. And the reality is this, friends. We are born as sinners. We all have a sin nature. One of my mentors calls it the old beast. And from time to time, that old beast rears its ugly head. We all wrestle and struggle with properly applying the characteristics of love. So as important as it is for us to understand what love is and how it works, it is equally important for Paul to identify what love is not and where our attitudes and habits and actions betray these highest ideals of love. And so here, Paul begins to unpack eight negative attributes or examples of love. What love is not. And we will reflect on four this week and reflect on four more next week. As these negative attributes are explored, there's a contrast that will begin to emerge between behaviors that are sometimes even celebrated in the eyes of the world that are negative and those that are celebrated and honoring in the eyes of God. Look at the second part of verse 4 into the beginning of verse 5. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
So an important question for us today is how do these negative attributes and attitudes that are opposed to love manifest themselves in our lives? And we start with envy. A basic definition of envy would be intensely desiring something that does not belong to us. Love is free from envy. Comparing ourselves to someone else or something else. And friends, even in the book of Genesis, early on, the Bible is full of examples of envy and how it destroys relationships and destroys people. Cain envied the way that Abel's offering was received. And eventually his envy welled up and what did it lead to? A murder of his brother. Jacob and Esau envied each other, did they not? Jacob wanted Esau's birthright. You remember Esau wanted the love and the blessing of his mother that Jacob enjoyed. One's envy led to manipulation and deceit, while the other's envy led to him being an outcast and plotting the murder of his own brother, though the Lord did not let him carry it out. Do you remember Leah and Rachel? The situation that they found themselves in. In the Old Testament, Jacob loved Rachel, the Bible tells us, with all of his heart. And Leah was the sister he never truly wanted. Leah produced children, child after child for Jacob, while Rachel remained barren. Genesis 30 tells us that Rachel became envious of Leah, eventually exploding one day on her husband, saying, give me children or I'll die. So what does she do? She gives Jacob her servant girls. They become pregnant, but it was not the same as her. Leah's pregnancies also stopped during this time, so she pushes her servant girls on Jacob. Her servants bring forth children, and the rivalry goes back and forth and back and forth. And Jacob finds himself stuck in the middle, a very busy man with many partners and many children. Eventually, God opened the womb of Rachel, and she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. There's other places, though, too. That's just in Genesis. There's more. Joseph's brothers. That coat Joseph had was awfully nice. Friends, envy destroys relationships. It leads to bitterness, harshness, and all kinds of behaviors that are opposed to the ideals of love. Saul was envious of David. If you want to hear more about that, jump into our Berean ABF. We talk a lot about that. And how about in the New Testament? There's an example of envy in the New Testament. The parable that Jesus gives of the prodigal son. We often overlook the envy and the jealousy of the older son. But the reality in that parable is that both sons were lost. One was far from the father. One was close. One the lamb out on the hill far away. The other representing the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Friends, we do this comparing and contrasting today in the church. We do it in our families. We do it with church leaders and authors and pastors and writers. The people of God in Corinth were doing this. They were saying, well, we follow Apollos. We follow Paul. 
back and forth, back and forth, comparing the value and the effectiveness of words and life and ministries of godly men. We compare ourselves to other congregations. We compare our homes to other families' homes and other people's homes. We compare our children's behaviors to the behaviors of other children. Our marriages, our possessions, our professions. Friends, envy is a dangerous monster. And if we feed on it, our jealousy towards others will only grow And we see this worked out in our home, and perhaps you do too. If we ask one of our children to do something that the other children don't also have to do, what response do you think we get? Why doesn't he have to do that? I also see this happen right on our living room floor as our children are playing together with one another. And it starts very subtly. One of our children will be sitting there playing with a toy. Another will be sitting over here playing with another toy. This one here playing with his toy will lose interest and start to enviously look at this other toy that is so much shinier and so much better. That toy subtly gets pushed aside as he croaches and encroaches on the personal space of the other child. And the next thing you know, we have criminal activity in our home. I'm having to jump in between children that are wrestling around on the floor and screaming over a fire truck or something of that means. (laughs) Friends, love remains focused on what God has asked of us. And love remains thankful for that which God has provided for each of us. And while we are to be thankful for who God made us and what God has given us, we are also to refrain from becoming boastful. Love does not boast. So we do not have attitudes or words or actions that proclaim, look at all I have. Look at the things I've earned. Look at all these things I've achieved. Having these attitudes expresses to others that what we've been called to or what we've been given is somehow about us rather than about God who is at work in and through us. Love does not boast. This word boast, friends, means to extol oneself, to lift oneself up and make oneself look high. And this boasting can be done either explicitly by our words and actions or implicitly by our attitudes and expressions. And Paul frequently cautions against boasting. He's actually clear that if anyone has anything to boast in, there is only one place that that boast can be aimed. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, even at the beginning of his letter to the people of God in Corinth, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here Paul is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, 
It wasn't just Jesus' friends who leaned heavily on the Old Testament in his teachings. But also Paul and the apostles, as we read their letters, they followed in the example of Jesus leaning heavily on the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9, 24. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we do not elevate ourselves, rather we elevate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. While on earth, Jesus made a habit of this. Jesus who was perfect, the only perfect teacher, the only one who came that was sinless. He made a habit of elevating the Father. Watch the example. It's in the book of Luke. There's a young ruler, some of you remember, a young ruler that came to Jesus. And what did he say when he approached him? He said what? Good teacher. Now, I don't know about you, but if anybody had a right to claim that they were a good teacher, it would be Jesus. The best. The only perfect teacher. But he does not take that boast Instead, he deflects it. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus' example of giving the Father glory, even though he was God, is a motivating example for us. I have heard this said, and perhaps you've been guilty of saying it. I've been guilty of saying it, that when we elevate ourselves, we're robbing God of glory that is due to him. I've heard that said. I've probably been guilty myself of saying that. However, the more I think about that statement, the more I think it perpetuates a small view of God. Who am I, a man, to be able to take anything away from God, including glory, I cannot steal or rob away anything that belongs to God. And so if I'm elevating myself above God, then I'm not necessarily robbing God of anything. I can't take anything from him that he doesn't willingly give to me. He's the potter. I am the clay. Rather, when I elevate myself, rather than giving glory to God, I am promoting and perpetuating a lie that says I am something that I am not. I'm taking the credit for something that I did not do on my own strength or efforts. I'm accepting credit for an assignment that Jesus has both completed and it is the process of completing in and through me. And this wrong and misleading thinking delivers false and misleading hope. Directing focus on ourselves rather than on the one who is accomplishing and achieving all things within us and through us. And friends, this can come so subtly and gently. Oh, you have such a nice family. Oh, look at look at the way you do this or do that. And and the challenge is we must direct people back to the realities that here on this planet, at this place, we are living in a broken and difficult world. But Jesus sustains us. Jesus keeps us. 
Jesus motivates us and moves us forward and gives us the ability to love in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. He is doing the work. We are walking by faith. Faith that he has motivated within us. This also protects us from developing arrogance, which Paul warns against in this passage. The attitude that we have accomplished something on our own merits or efforts. One of the, and I like football, but one of the things I absolutely can't stand is when somebody gets a first down and they get up and they think, <sighs> and I just want to say, stop it. You did your job. Go back to the huddle. Do it again. Imagine if every Sunday I got down out of this pulpit. <laughs> whoop de doo I did my job. <laughs> if we're strong, we're strong because Jesus has made us strong. If we've achieved success, then we should be thankful. It's a gift from God that has been achieved or given by his grace and mercy. If we have abundance... We have abundance because Jesus has seen fit to give us more than we deserve. Be thankful for his grace and give to others as Jesus has given to you. If we have peace when the circumstances in our worlds are difficult or out of order, then Jesus has accomplished that peace within us. We didn't motivate it within ourselves. If we're comforted in grief and mourning, that is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. He himself is the great comforter. He can choose to comfort us herself, himself, or draw others into our lives to comfort us. Give God the glory. If we have clarity in moments of confusion and uncertainty, thank the Lord that his wisdom and his guidance has been given to us. There is nothing, friends, nothing, nothing, nothing on this earth that we have of our own efforts or achievements. And this posture of humility protects us from acting rude or unbecoming, which is the final admonition in Paul's first sentence describing love. The word rude in the Greek, actually means to become conformed, indecent, or unseemly. It's like when a face becomes conformed because it's trying to make someone out in the distance. The idea that we look unbecoming, that we're consumed so much with our own passions for something or someone that we act in a way that is rather unloving or unbecoming towards the person or situation we are passionate about. And so in other words, we can become so passionate about something or someone that that passion, rather than love, can take over. And we can act in an unbecoming or rude way to that person or in that situation. So how might our lives look in light of our realities? Well, friends... We don't have to look back very far into the history of our nation to find a moment where all eight of the negative characteristics in our text, four today and four next week, were on full display. The events of Wednesday, January 6th at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. should give us all calls to stop and consider how these negative behaviors are sometimes celebrated 
and even encouraged within our culture. And I might ask us this morning, how can we as the people of God living in America love different, love different, and lead different? And I would say, friends, that the answer to that is there is only one way. And that is to continue to point people to Jesus. His ways are best. And here is the reality. We cannot create or motivate these right attributes of love, patience, and kindness within ourselves. Only God can do that through his work within us. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, friends, in moments of uncertainty, in times of trial and tribulation, being motivated by his example, being compelled by his love to love others in the same manner that we ourselves have been loved. These are important qualities, church. And with Jesus front and center, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, and the patterns of our lives will follow as his spirit nurtures and develops us into children of love with a nature of love. Friends, I don't know about you, but something that is natural, that lives within us, expresses itself naturally. We don't have to always work very hard to express it. Now, some days, the Lord puts a difficult person in our lives. Those days, it's time for us to grow. And not just a greater love for God, but a greater love for that person as well. Who are the neighbors in your life this week that need to see the patience and kindness of Jesus at work in your life? How might Jesus, through your words and actions, help you to demonstrate the same extraordinary kindness and patience that you yourself have been shown? Friends, we have been loved greatly by a great and wonderful God. Let us endeavor to love one another greatly. As well. Let's pray as our team comes. Father, we are thankful again this morning for this challenge from Paul that love is patient and love is kind. And we acknowledge this morning that through Jesus we have been loved patiently and we have been loved kindly. He's drawn us to himself, pulled us into a relationship with him. And Father, I would acknowledge this morning that there could be some here in this building, there could be some who are watching online that do not know and have not experienced that kind of love. It is foreign to them. But Lord, we know and we affirm that you used your word in moments like this to draw people unto yourself and save them. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning would be that if there is any who are hearing, who are listening, who do not have a relationship with you, that the testimony of your patience and your kindness, that you found us dead in our trespasses and sins, You loved us, and you caused us to love. And you call us to turn from our sins, to repent, confess 
that you are Lord of our life. And in that and through that, you gave us and give us great freedom and hope. Lord, if we haven't experienced that in our own lives, I pray that you would work in a way right now, even in these moments, to complete that work of salvation. Father, for those who are here that have experienced that, our prayer then is that you challenge us in a way that would cause us to love others in the same manner. And might that be our desire, that we would have the same mind that your son Jesus had. We need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.